Um, Psalm, Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Speaking about Jerusalem. May peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces for the sake of my brethren and, co- and companies. I will now say peace within you because of the house of the Lord our God. I will seek your good. Can you guys name for me uh, another city in the world that the Bible specifically tells you to pray for? How about Tooele, Utah? As great of a city as it is. No? Just Jerusalem. The only one I know of. All right, youth group. They already left anyway, so. (laughs) Uh, I wanted them to hear that scripture. So you got to tell them Psalm Psalm 122.6. Um, so anyways, uh, you know, I don't know what it is about November, but it it was this time last year in November that, uh, we were in Israel and, um, Jackie, who's there in the back, she, her and Larry were with me on that trip. And while we were in Israel, 400 rockets were fired from Gaza into Israel, into the Southern area of Israel. And we didn't really even know about it, to be honest. Like it's, it's not a big country. The, 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 the nation of Israel, the country of Israel is smaller than New Jersey, the state of New Jersey, the entire country. But um, the, the Gaza Strip is in the far south, west, or east part of, it, of, of the country. And then um, all this rocket fire is coming from there. But really, if you're anywhere else, and they, they do a very good job of keeping us safe while we're there, and, and to the point where we never heard it or seen it or even knew it was going on if we weren't a day later or two days later watching it in the news. Um, as of this latest um, barrage of rockets that have come out of Israel, uh, it was the same thing a year ago when we were there. It was about 400 rockets. The last time, I don't know why they, they like to count the rockets, I guess, you know, but it was like 162 rockets when it broke, and then 250, and now the number is about 400. And I, I'm not exactly sure how all these rockets are fired. I don't know if they're shoulder-fired shoulder, shoulder fired rockets or if they – there are other style of rockets. But Israel has a defense system called the Iron Dome, and it sends flares into the sky that intercepts these rockets, that these rockets are um, um, heat-synced or drawn to, or, or, or they just, it's like shooting bullets with other bullets. Pretty miraculous, the system, the Iron Dome. But they're, they're able to shoot these rockets out of the sky and um, to the rate of about 90%. So 10% of them are getting through. Um, there's a picture of one that hits a road. Um, so two, two cars are driving down the road, and then there's this explosion right, right in the middle of these two cars. And then the next thing you know, you see the, 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 the fireball and the smoke, and then these two cars, just like nothing happened, just keep jetting right out of this explosion, just right down the street. I, I have it, and I do know I have it somewhere. I don't know where I keep it. But my favorite um, newspaper article of all times is a, is a Palestinian um, um, publication and the, the guy on the other side who's shooting the rockets, he's like, it's so weird. It's like, it's like God is just like 
flicking the rockets out. Like we watch him and we fire him right into a group and they go and then they just ping like at the last minute. And he's like, it's as if God is just flicking these rockets right out of the sky. It's so weird. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. That God is just flicking your rockets out of the sky. You know, the whole thing is, is such a frustration to me. You know, I guess I'm good thing I'm not in charge of the uh, uh, Israeli politics and, and military because we would have took care of this a long time ago. But it, it's not a fight. The thing is, it's, it's not like two armies that are – I just can't even explain it. Like, it, you know, it, it wouldn't it – wouldn't, it, like if, if the city of Tooele wanted to, wanted to fight the United States Army, that would be the equivalent. Like, we got a lot of guns here in Tooele, right? Like we, but if, if we wanted to fight the United States Army in Tooele – Come on, man. A couple F-15s later, and it's all over. And and really, the the the, the Israeli Defense Force and and what they could do through Gaza and, and and with the Palestinian problem, if they wanted to 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 deal with this. And and you'd, you'd think, after 800 rockets, in in in, in a 12-month period, have been fired out of Gaza into Israel at civilians, and they're getting more bold. They're filing, fire, trying to fire them into um, cities and towns and and residential areas and. Um, Sirens are going off, and, and no, no Israelis have been killed, but they, they have um, lives been greatly disrupted. And they're, they've been moved into bomb shelters and, and into places of hiding and out of areas where these rockets can reach. And, um, and so, the, you know, but at the same time, Israel could just absolutely just go push them right into the ocean, you know, because they're backed up to the ocean. They just, or, you know, a couple airplanes over the top of it, and it's over. But... Um, yeah, if it was me, I'd just park a couple of buses out front and just be like, all right, put your women and children on the bus if you like. But this is what's going to happen, and you won't be firing rockets into Israel anymore. And, and we're done tolerating this. But you know that, that it took five minutes today. I don't know if you guys saw this, but the some of the rockets that were being fired out of um, Gaza into Israel misfired and hit buildings in Gaza. And, and within five seconds, the humanitarian relief societies and people came out and made a public condemnation of Israel for firing rockets at these buildings where civilians are. Not a word about the 400 <laughs> rockets that are, that are firing the other way. It was cool because there was a, there was a Trey, blah, blah, blah. He's an he's a, a embedded reporter with Fox News. He's there in Gaza, which stupid. I wouldn't be standing where he was, but he, 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 he put out immediately... He said, I was across the street when that happened. And he said, that was, that was a Hamas-fired rocket from Gaza at Israel that misfired. Israel had nothing to do with that. But, but immediately, because the, their, their ploy, right, their, their end game is they, they know that they can't win. There's no way they can militarily fight or, or, or defeat or even put any damage on Israel. I mean, God, for goodness sakes, like how retarded are you? You, you fired 400 rockets in a in an offensive, and you've killed nobody. You've done nothing. I mean, you've caused a lot of trouble, but you've killed nobody. So, so really what they do, and really their only end game is, is they have no chance to, to militarily win a war or, or really put any kind of, you know, like I said, we have, Lydia and I met with Jackie and Kathy, uh, the pastors at Calvary Chapel Buell Sunday night. They were here in Salt Lake. We drove down, hung out with them because their, their church was, was leaving Monday morning for an Israeli tour, tour. And of course, everybody's texting them and freaking out. And she's like, there's rockets going off in Israel. 
really? Why does that happen? Like, they don't even know. Like, they're not even, they, they don't even know. She's like, yeah, we're fine. We heard there's some rockets going off in the south of Israel. And, you know, we, we haven't heard or seen anything. There's, there's no problems. And, um, you know, and, and really, like I said here in Psalm 22, it says to, for us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Which I, I guess in itself, it's kind of an, it's kind of like a catch twenty two because really there'll be no peace in Jerusalem. There, there never will be peace in Jerusalem until until Jesus comes. And so when Jesus comes, then he'll he'll be the first time where we'll actually bring peace to to Jerusalem. But we're still called to pray. But really, technically, like I said, Jerusalem right now is the safest place on planet Earth. There's no place because of the security, because of the threats, because of, of what they are and what they do and where they are and, and, and how they protect. Jerusalem is absolutely the safest place on planet Earth. I'd much rather be walking around downtown Jerusalem than downtown San Bernardino or West Valley <laughs> or wherever, you know. I don't know. We don't really got too many ghettos here, but um, I guarantee you it's scarier in Compton and Lenox than it is in Jerusalem. But um, completely safe completely safe you know we, we've just never had any trouble but frustrating heartbreaking what's going on and what's happening so pray for pray for them anyways pray for this ceasefire and pray for these knuckleheads to cut it out or for Israel so actually I, let, me, let me just finish with this and we'll get to what we're doing tonight um what I was going to say I, I don't want to just start a thought and not finish it but basically what what they do and we don't even understand this mindset in the West. We really don't. But they don't have any problem. So they fire rockets, and then they, and then they house their rockets and their weapons in schools and in, and, and in, in um, hospitals. Because they know that the West won't, won't attack schools and hospitals. And they, but they want, and they purposely put their children and their women in harm's way. So, so where all these rockets are being fired from and where all these military offenses generate... They make sure that they keep tons of civilians, women and children in these areas. Because if, if, if we attack back, if Israel attacks back and in the process kills women and children, now the international outcry um, and, and the world sentiment is against Israel and they can, prob- they can try to draw other people in to, um, to the fight. So that's really what, they, what they, their only really end game is to try to get international outcry against Israel. And they make stuff up. You know, they... They just make stuff up. They'll put video propaganda videos out of, of people that have been killed by the Israelis, women and children. And in the video, the little kid that's supposed to be dead is like can't hold still. And it's like still moving in the video. <laughs> they still put it out, you know, or, or there is something that happens where the baby's dead or something. And they, you know, try to get the international outcry against Israel. But, and it, and, and it, it works to some degree because it does keep the restraints on Israel. All right, hey, Psalm 22, or not, no, we're not there, I just want to tell you, Psalm 122, uh, verse 6, and I think in another Psalm 2, to, to where we're called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're going to do a little um, pull out tonight, so open your Bibles, we're going to start in Hebrews 11, I want to talk about tonight, Father Abraham. We've been studying, if you guys have been here on Sunday mornings, we've been studying um, about Abraham and this, this life and walk of faith. So I thought kind of in light of of Israel today and, and really of kind of where we've been on Sundays that we're going to take a minute and kind of fill in some of the stuff that I haven't been able to cover on Sunday mornings that I've been wanting to cover through the life of Abraham. But um, so if we look at Hebrews chapter 11 and we're going to be we're going to start in Genesis 14 as well. If you want to keep a finger in Genesis 14 or mark that. Um, 
But in Hebrews chapter 11, we have this story. Now, really what Hebrews 11 is, is this amazing story of faith in the life of believers like you and I. It's a challenge. It's a call to us. And we've been talking a lot on Sundays about living our lives um, by faith. And that it requires um, certain, you know, steps of faith in your life. And what an amazing place to be able to live your life in such a way that you need God to show up in your life in, in order for things to go well for you. The children of Israel were standing at the edge of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is bearing down. The Egyptian army is absolutely going to slaughter defenseless Israel as they stand there on the Red Sea. There's only one way they're going to survive, and that is if God shows up and does a miracle. And that's living life by faith. We're, we're in a situation in your life where you're backed in a corner and there's one way that you're going to survive. And that is that God is going to show up and do a miracle in your situation, do a miracle in your life. Now, really, the book of Hebrews is this starting in the Garden of Eden by faith, um, Enoch, by faith, Abel, by faith, um, on and on and on, Noah, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith, Sarah, by faith, by faith, by faith. And then all the testimonies of faith. And really, these are just ordinary people. Who, who live their lives in the hands of an extraordinary God. And, and, and this God orchestrates their lives and, they, and, they, and gives them opportunity to step out and walk in faith with the Lord. And so Abraham and Abraham's life, Abraham has such an amazing life because Abraham is called um, biblically. And to this day, Abraham, as you know, he's, the, he's the, really the, the key figure in three major faiths. In Judaism and Christianity and, and, and in Islam, all three faiths um, go back to this point in history of, of God calling this pagan um, man whose dad was a pagan priest in a city called Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern day Iraq. And, and so Abraham lives in this very sophisticated um, city of his day. You know, one of the things that, that they're finding and scientists finding, which we know we knew to be true anyways, it's nothing new really. You know, the Bible, we, we knew these things from the Bible a long time ago. But, you, you know, first of all, there's no such thing as a caveman. There's never been in, in, in our history of human beings this, this phase of, of caveman where they didn't have, you know, language and wheels and fire and, and they were very prehistoric and, oh, oh, you know, it just never happened. What we find through, through history is that, is, that our, is that people that lived thousands and thousands of years ago were actually smarter than we are today. And the technologies and the, and the discoveries and the things that they were able to do without modern technology, we still can't do today with our modern technology. The Incans with the Incan calendar and the Mayans and, and, and the things that they were able to figure out, the, the, the stars and astronomy with no computers, no, you know, none of these things. And, and, and even in the, in the Mayan calendar and those things, that, that we're so sophisticated beyond our days today. So basically what we're finding is that, is that the, the, the people of history were very intelligent, much, much more intelligent than we are today. You know, and when you don't have all the distractions of the world we have today and they, they started at a young age and lived a little bit longer and, and had to, to read and study and know these things that, that, you know, in Egypt, one of the things that's the most fascinating to me and something, again, that our math got wrong, we tried to reduplicate it. And we missed it by, we couldn't do it. We missed it by a full day. But they, they have, a, a, not, I don't know if it's a pyramid, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, in Egypt, and it's a pharaoh who um, on his face is a statue of him. And, and there's a hole in the wall where it's encompassed in a, in a kind of this thing. And um, once a year on his birthday, 
the sun shines through this hole onto his face on his birthday. One time a year. And, and you know, as the, as the day changes, right? Like your birthday is always on that day of the year, but that day of the year changes. And the week of the day of the week changes and the stuff changes around it. But one day a year and only on his birthday, the sun comes through this, this hole in the wall and shines on the statue of his face. And they figured it out. They figured out the math to be able to do it. And it was accurate every year. You know, and, and we, we tried it. We tried to reduplicate it, and we actually missed it by a day. The sun would come through, and we could make it come through, but on the wrong day. And, and so just, again, in Abraham, where Abraham comes from, Abraham comes from this, this very sophisticated city. They were, uh, it's called Ur of the Chaldees. Lots of excavations have been done there and archaeological finds. They found um, schools of math and of science, and um, Pythagoras' theory was found, obviously long before Pythagoras figured it out. But the very formula of Pythagoras' theory was, was found in the Ur of the Chaldees, which is this ancient city uh, about 2,000 years before Christ is where this stuff lands. And so, um, so Abraham comes from there. He's um, just some pagan guy from Ur of the Chaldees. Comes the first. There's no such thing as an Israelite or a Hebrew until Abraham. He becomes the father of, of the nation. And he's called out of there, and his life is a journey of faith and of steps. And as God comes to Abraham, he tells Abraham to go. Calls him to go to a place that he's going to show him, or a place that has a builder and a foundation whose maker and builder is God. And and so Abraham goes out not knowing where he's going, which is crazy. God didn't just come and say, Abraham, I want you to go here. He said, Abraham, get up and go. And Abraham, who is a pagan father, he gets up and he goes. You know, the nice thing about God telling you to go somewhere, and if he doesn't tell you where you're going, then you need to rely on him for every step and every turn. If I got in your car and I said, hey, I need you to take me to a specific place. And you said, okay, where is that place? And I said, I want you to take me to the Maverick Center. And you punch it up in your GPS and you could put me in the trunk. You don't need me anymore. I, you can get to the Maverick Center. But if I just tell you, hey, just, just drive, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. And when you get to the light, you look over, and I'm like, take a left. And you get to the next light, and you look over, and I'm like, yeah, just keep going straight. I'll tell you when it's time to turn. <laughs> I mean, you need then, you need this relationship with me to be able to tell you each step of the way of faith. And so as Abraham tells God just to go, God tells Abraham just to go. He has to live this life of, of stepping out in faith all the way around. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. And it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of the promise as, a, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him with the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We talked about before, where is that city or what is that city? It's a heavenly city. It's an eternal city. It's a, it's a city who has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. Not made with hands in the heavens, it tells us in another place. Not made with, with our hands. And so Abraham understood that, and, and, and the takeaway for you and I, so important, listen, this is so important to this whole step of faith in Hebrews 11. What Abraham understood was that the things he was looking for in this faith journey of following God just to go out, he would never find here. He understood that it wasn't, he wasn't going to get to a place where he was going to find a building. He was going to find a, a city, a job, a life that was going to bring fulfillment. He understood that no matter how good it got, he was never going to find it until 
he, he got to heaven. He understood that what he was looking for was eternity. And for you and I, we'll never find it. Hey, I've been sharing on the church's Facebook page about the SoCal Men's Conference that went off last Saturday. I posted some links to it recently, how you can get the teachings. There's a Navy SEAL who, who does a teaching um, on that thing. If you click on that link, SoCal 2019, you'll come to the page. Um, and I don't remember his name, but he's a Navy SEAL. And he was in Fallujah and, 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 and he was involved in the in an ambush, and he starts to tell the story how they were training. Um, he was there late, so it was more recent. He was with the Navy SEALs, and they were training um, um, some of the Iraqi uh, soldiers to take over and trying to pull out more and more and more, and they had one last offensive. Well, anyways, um, he, in his story of becoming a Navy SEAL, he talks about a dream that he had when he was a young boy. He told his dad he wanted to become a Navy SEAL. And his dad got on the Internet, and he, he put out this kind of thing, and he met some Navy SEAL on the Internet that was willing to come and talk to his son about becoming a Navy SEAL. And so what he did was he told, he told the Navy SEAL, hey, go and just um, thrash him so bad that he'll just forget this whole idea. So that's how they started. And, and, he, and he went out, and, and he began to train at like 16, 17 years old with this super famous Navy SEAL that his dad met on the Internet. And so he, 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 he's doing it, and he's making it. And the, and the guy comes out, and the guy's like punches him in the stomach and knocks him over and then takes off running, and he has to chase him for like miles. And, and he just keeps doing it, he keeps doing it, and he keeps doing it as a young man. And the guy's trying to like make it as difficult as he can. Well, they became best friends, really good friends. And, and this particular Navy SEAL is a highly decorated Navy SEAL that was – he just he, all of his stuff that he that he was involved in and did is is pretty impressive. His name was Tom. He was the, the older guy that was training the younger guy. Well, the younger guy in this and he teaches. He's a he's a Christian now. He's not a pastor, but he's a he's a public speaker and he shares his testimony that he became a Navy SEAL. And, and there was this huge letdown in life. There was this huge disappointment when when and, and not only did he become a Navy SEAL because when he became a Navy SEAL he was let down and, and he just felt like. Man, everything that I've ever wanted since I was 16 years old, I have now. And he said, maybe it's combat. Maybe I just, I need to be involved in combat. And then he got um, sent to Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan, and he got involved in, his, in, in combat. And it still didn't do it. Why? Because, because it wasn't, it w- he was looking for a building which had builder and maker um, who was God, not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. And so, again, he shares this testimony that fits right here. And his personal testimony is just that I, I achieved in life those things that I thought were going to bring that fulfillment. And when I got there, when I got to the top, it was empty, right? That's, that's the entire biblical story of who in the Bible? A guy by the name of King Solomon. And King Solomon is a guy that became the richest guy that has ever lived on planet Earth. He became... Um, he had a thousand wives, a thousand women at his disposal. He he had um, he was the smartest, the wisest, most educated man that's ever lived. And, and so God allows this one person in human history to reach the pinnacle of everything that you and I think would think would be great in the area of of of, of partying and and lascivious lifestyles of that thing. Solomon reached the very top. Now you and I will die before we ever get anywhere near the top. But, but God let one guy get to the top in everything. And when he got there, 
He looked over, and guess what? It wasn't there what he was looking for. What he thought it would do, it didn't do. And he said, vanity of vanity, all is vanities. And that's, that's again, that's the testimony that, that this Navy SEAL shares, is that he had, he had got to this weird place in life where he really had accomplished everything he thought was going to do that, and nothing worked. But Abraham understood that, and that's a lesson that we take away from um, Abraham's life here in verse 10, chapter 11, verse 10. For he waited for the city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, I like that verse, because Abraham was 99 years old when, when Isaac was born. And so God says, from Abraham, and who was as good as dead, which is a nice way of saying that, yeah. And then it says um, that there wasn't enough Viagra to help this guy. Yeah, that's what it says right here. Yeah, yeah. no amount of Viagra would have helped him. He was past the age. He was as good as dead, but God did a miracle. And it says, of the sky in multitude, innumerable is the sand by the seashore. So that was the promise, that, that Abraham would become the father of this innumerable amount of people, as many as, as is sand by the seashore. Can you even imagine? Just one beach, I don't care. Just Manhattan Beach alone. I don't care. Even the coast, four miles of the coast in Southern California, um, to be able to count the grains of sand. But it says, all of the immeasurable as the sand which is by the seashore, innumerable. So it didn't necessarily mean it would be tit for tat, but it did mean that as as innumerable as the sand is by the seashore, so would the offspring from Abraham become. And so um, we don't know what that number is, this big number. And it says, um, verse 17, go go to verse 17. And it says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, He offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, whom it was well said, and Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And then in verse 20, so we're in 20, Genesis 22 is where we read that. Go back to verse 13 now, and it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed as they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Hey, here's something you've got to understand biblically um, about God, about the Bible, about Abraham, about Isaac, Jacob, every one of the, the patriarchs of the Old Testament. And, and I think it, it does make, to me, um, make sense and it makes, it makes it all complete. But Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Noah, Esau, anybody... Um, in the Old Testament, how did they get to heaven? Now, now we know that uh, we have what we call um, dispensations. Now, there's lots of dispensations. Actually, we could identify eight different dispensations, like many of them in the first uh, 2,000 years of human history. But really, if we just take two major dispensations, the, the, the covenant, the old covenant, and the new covenant, there was definitely a dispensation change when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent from top to the bottom, and and now moving forward, we relate to Jesus by grace and faith. Where in the Old Testament, we didn't have Jesus dying on a cross, so we related to God based on the covenant that, that God gave Moses. 
And then God said in Jeremiah that he was going to bring a new covenant, which is, again, established when the day Jesus dies on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent. Everybody wants to kind of figure out where do you divide the Old and the New Testament dispensationally? Well, the good thing is the Bible answers that question. And it says that John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament saints. So that's where Jesus, God, decided to draw the line was, hey, we've got to draw it somewhere. John the Baptist back, Old Testament. John the Baptist, anybody forward of John the Baptist is New Testament. So, um, but even though they related to God under a different set of rules, under the law of Moses, the thing that is important that I wanted to highlight for you, tell you about, is that they, they went to heaven the same way you and I did, is what the Bible teaches. Is that Abraham went to heaven based on faith in Jesus Christ. It says, and, and again, I, I could, you know, we, we could get into some other stuff, but just in a nutshell, it says, um, Verse 13 says, these all died in faith, not having received the promise. The promise is the promise of a coming Messiah. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So in, in, in many places, again, it, biblically, we, we get this concept explained, maybe a little clearer in some other places in the Bible, that, um, that Abraham... He, he believed in the promise of the coming Messiah. It says that, you know, it says Abraham was made righteous according to faith. And it was, it was accounted to Abraham righteous by faith. But nobody in the Old Testament. Everybody went looking forward to the Messiah. And there was a great expectation in the time that Jesus was going to come, that Messiah would come. And people understood that. And, and so, but every one of them understood clearly from the scriptures, from the Lord, that God was going to send a Savior, a Redeemer, a Messiah one day in the future. And then, you know, none of these folks got to go directly to be in the presence of God until after Jesus died on the cross. And the Bible says when Jesus died on the cross, before he ascended, he did what? He first descended and set captivity free. So he went down. Now it gets a little um, gray area for some folks what that meant. It does not mean that he had to go experience hell. He didn't go to the hell side. He had no work to do on the hell side. When he went down, he went down to a place called Abraham's bosom that the Bible talks about where there was a great crevasse that separated the two. And the rich man told Lazarus, just put one drop of water on my tongue. And Lazarus said, I, I, not Lazarus who God raised from the dead, but another Lazarus in the story, a parable or a story that Jesus tells, not a parable, but a true story that Jesus tells. And he said, look, I can't. And even if I wanted to, there's the great crevasse between me and you, and I couldn't even get to you. And he said, well, go back and tell my brothers. I have four brothers. Tell them, tell them of this, this, this salvation so they don't end up here. And he said, even if the dead were to be raised and come back, they wouldn't believe. If they won't believe the scriptures and the prophets. If they won't believe what God has already put out before them to believe, then they won't believe. And so he said, basically, no. So Jesus goes to this place, Abraham's bosom, on the good side, the heaven side, and, he, and then he, he proclaims the fullness of the gospel. And at this point, these folks, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and all of the Old Testament saints are now washed in the blood of Jesus. And because they're washed in the blood of Jesus, they, they no longer are just covered in the blood of lambs, 
which only covered their sins, but their sins are cleansed, washed away, and they're able to go. But again, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We'll find that in in Hebrews 12 next Sunday. But again, it it is just kind of a, 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 I think an important thing for us to understand is that from Adam and Eve to you and I, we all get saved the same way. It's faith in, in Messiah. It's faith in Jesus. It's faith in God. It's by faith, through faith. So when, when it says in, in Ephesians 2.8, you have been saved by grace, that, that that same grace that saved you, that same faith that saved you through faith, you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, is the same faith. Although they couldn't see and know, maybe they didn't even have a name, but they understood that the Messiah would come. So, And then in verse 14, for those who say such things declare plainly they seek a homeland. And they truly, if they, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come, they come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Praise God. Hey, go to Genesis really quick. Let's go to Genesis 14. And this is kind of where we, the life of Abraham um, begins. No, that's not true. Um, Genesis 12, I'm sorry. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, before his name was changed to Abraham, Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So really the, the beginning of the Hebrew nation to me is such an anomaly. Like, what, You know there's other places where we find these um, pagan men or, or people that, that don't necessarily come from any kind of godly upbringing. But, but something inside of them, there's this fear of God that they, they have, that, they, that they've, they live with. Or God will point out that you know, this man paid alms and, and feared the Lord. But with Abraham, we don't really get any qualifying factors. Did God just pick him out of a hat? Was he somebody who, who God saw something in that, that place, you know, just in the middle of, 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 of Ur of the Chaldees? And his father is a, is a pagan priest who's in charge of one of the temples there in, in Ur of the Chaldees. And he calls out to Abraham, and he makes him this just amazing promise. Come out to a place that I will show you. And he's told to leave his family. Now, when we go to Genesis, we're going to see the flaws of, of Father Abraham. And as I've pointed out a, a bunch of times, right, Hebrews does not record any of the flaws of any of the people, on, only the blessings. And when you read it, you're saying, is, is God lying? Why, does, why is God trying to make this sound better than it is? Why, why is he only saying the good things? When we really know, if we go to Genesis, we read the story of Abraham, we find there was all kinds of flaws in Abraham's life. And if you just read Hebrews 11, you think, wow, this guy is perfect in all of his ways. But that's because God, God has forgiven his sins. God is, God, just like for you and I, God's only going to remember the, the things of obedience and the blessings and, and, and reward you on those things. And, and the Bible says God has placed your sins as far as the east is from the west. God said he's taken your sins and he's thrown them into the sea of forgetfulness. And so in Abraham's life and in God's life, he only remembers the blessing. He doesn't even record the things. 
But really the, the truth of what happened is that Abraham's life, like you and my, like your life and my life, listen, this is important in the life of Abraham for us to learn, is that, is that Abraham's life goes on hold, and we miss it. He's going to go through a thing before between these next two verses, 25 years where God doesn't really show up and do anything in his life. God doesn't show up and, and, and move him forward or perform any miracles. And it has nothing to do with God not being willing to, to work in, in Abraham. Now, in this point in the story, Abraham is pretty important. Like, God kind of needs this guy in a way. Not, not that he couldn't find somebody else or do it a different way, but at this point, like, you're, you know, Abraham now is going to be the great-grandfather, with lots of greats after that, of Jesus. And through this line of Abraham, the, the entire Hebrew nation is going to be born. But God just waits. So no, not recorded in the New Testament. And it says, so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken. Good. Obedience. Verse 4. Genesis twelve four. And Lot went with him. Uh-oh. What does it mean Lot went with him? He Didn't he say leave your family in verse number 1? From your family? Didn't God tell him to not take his family? And also we know he took his father. He took the pagan priest with him. And God said to go to a place that I will show you. And where did he go? At the end of verse 4, he went to a city called Haran. What in the world was he doing in Haran? God didn't tell him to go to Haran. But you know, there was 25 years between verse number 1 and verse number 4. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. But, but, but he doesn't tell you in the New Testament that he took Lot and his dad and they went to Haran. They spent 25 years there doing what? They got out of Ur of the Chaldees. They go down. They make it as far as Haran. And, and, and Abraham is waiting for his father to die. And his father dies in Haran 25 years later. And now Abraham decides to get up and continue this, this journey of faith that he began with the Lord. And the Lord just waits as Abraham's life waits at a red light. He doesn't give him any more further instructions. He doesn't tell him. He doesn't keep coming, hey, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Or, or, or you know, we, we live our lives that way sometimes. God's already told you what to do. And you're in Haran and you're waiting. And Lord, what am I supposed to do? Lord, what is your will for my life? And he's like, uh, I already told you. When you do that, then I'll tell you the next thing. And he's not going to tell you A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Z. He's going to give you A. And when you listen to A, he'll give you B. And when you do B, he'll give you C. But each, each step is a step of obedience and a faith of stepping out. So we, we have him. And it says, then Abraham took Sarah. And what does it say in verse, of, verse of 7? It says, then the Lord appeared to Abraham, Abram. The Lord appeared to him after 25 years of waiting for Abraham to take that step of faith. And he said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who, who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountains east of Bethel. And he pitched his tents with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. And so Abraham journeyed going toward the south. Now, as you guys know, um, um, building an altar is a good sign. It's, 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 it's a biblical way of, 
going to church, growing, um, doing godly things. Like the fact that Abraham is worshiping the Lord, he's building altars, he's stopping and he's pausing in his life. It speaks of relationship with God, you know, in, 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 or that he prayed. And, and we read through it very quickly. Abraham prayed. Abraham built an altar. Abraham spoke to the Lord. And, you know, but when, we, when you have that, that narrative lacking in the thing, like in King David's life, when we get to like Second Samuel 30, where he's down with the Philistines um, down in Ziklag, no mention for a long period, 14-month period of David's life of him seeking the Lord or of him building altars or of him praying. And he's in a bad place and he's backslidden to some degree and not spending any time and not hearing from the Lord. So when you see that biblical phrase, it's, it's a reminder. Now go to chapter 12 in Genesis and just look at verse 3 really quick. I want to just highlight this before we move on. Um, so the original promise to Abraham, who, who's the father of the nation of Israel, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And then in verse three, he says, and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that's a messianic prophecy. It always is that that blessing that all people will be blessed through you, Abraham, means that through Abraham, Jesus would come and that through the life of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, again, that all people would be blessed. But we have this eternal promise in 12.3, never been rescinded. And it's a very simple promise. It's a biblical promise. And God says here to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And that is, that is true, I think, of Israel nationally and, and of Jews individually. You know, and, and God says that, you know, as far as Israel is concerned, that they're the apple of his eye. And so as a nation, you know, one of the things that, you know, one of the main things that I vote every time I vote is foreign policy on Israel. Where does this candidate stand on Israel? And I, and I think one of the things that scared me the most in the last eight years was um, our, our turning our back on Israel. That's a scary position because, because you can watch Great Britain. You can watch Spain. You know, we could go all the way back to Babylon, Rome, on and on and on and on and on. And you can see it. You want a fascinating history lesson? Study the, 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 the Inquisition that the Jews survived when they were kicked out of Spain and what happened in Spain as a result and following. Look at what happened when Great Britain turned their back on, on Israel. Look at what happened when, you know, and the Babylonians and, the, and the, every, every civilization through human history that, that have been an eternal enemy. You guys met a Philistine lately? No, but I bet you, you know that Israel still exists because God will absolutely bless those who bless thee and curse those who curse thee. Now, let me tell you this. Um, you have, as the bride of Christ, the same blessings. You know, I, 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 I want you to know that, yes, there is a special place in God's heart for Israel and for the Jew. But you have the same exact position they have. You have the same blessing that they have. You have the same opportunity that they have. Should we all just stop and stare at Josh for a minute, or should I just keep preaching like he's not there? No, it's all good. Um, so you, you, uh, you know, when I was in Israel last, the I was telling the guide some of this stuff, you know, and he, and he was like, he so wanted me to know that 
you know, that, that, that we as the bride of Christ, yes, Israel is the apple of God's eye, and, and they are in a blessed place. And, and, but so much of Israel is secular, and so much of Israel is religious and, and, and hard-hearted, it's blinded. But he said, for you and me as, as the bride of Christ, we're, we're ever a bit as, as close to God's eye as they are, and that we have, again, it was super, super important to him for to him to communicate to me that as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, I have all the same blessings. I have all the same position and all the same rights and all the same protections. Let's just go a couple more seconds, um, minutes maybe. Um, so what I wanted to do was look at Hebrews 11 and the narrative of Abraham and then go back to Genesis and, and kind of pick up some of the actual story of what we're reading in Hebrews 11. Um, but we're the next section, if you look at 14, um, we see the, the introduction of Melchizedek. Now, as you guys know, we've spent um, weeks and weeks teaching Melchizedek and the priesthood of Melchizedek biblically. Okay? I do believe that it's important for Christians in, um, and, and especially in Utah um, because to understand as a Christian how to um, understand Melchizedek how to have a, a biblical um, view of who Melchizedek is and was and, um, and, and what the priesthood of Melchizedek is biblically and, and what the very, very simple biblical case is for Melchizedek. We spent laboring this, this point for a while. We're not going to do it tonight, but we get this, this narrative of Melchizedek in here, um, this, this priest who kind of rides on the pages of the Bible in Genesis 14, no mention of him before, no mention of him afterwards. Um, it says that, the, that the, the, the lesser blesses the greater, and Abraham is, is the greatest character in, this, in the story and in the narrative and in the Bible, but yet Abraham blesses this Melchizedek because this Melchizedek is greater than even Father Abraham. Abraham pays him a tithe of a tenth, and so he gives him... Um, a tithe and an offering. He worships him, and Melchizedek receives the worship. Um, Melchizedek disappears. You don't really hear him again and see him again. Um, the psalmist picks up on the idea of Melchizedek and me- mentions Melchizedek one time in the Psalms, and then again, um, no more mention or, or, or appearance of Melchizedek until you get to Hebrews. And then when you get to Hebrews, Paul thoroughly unpacks um, who Melchizedek is, what the priesthood is, how it functions, why it functions, and, and you know, just so you, you, you understand in a nutshell, there is one priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Um, it's, it's a godly priesthood that, that, that the Lord set up to, to solve a problem that he created, and, and part of the problem that, that he created was that um, you could not be both priest and king, and yet Jesus would be our high priest and our king. And so that's something that the law of Moses forbid, and God forbid it strongly. And so in order for Jesus to hold both offices, he could not be a priest according to the order of uh, uh, the Levitical priesthood. And as we know, Jesus was not even um, from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, kind of skirts the, the, the law of Moses, fixes the problem. And also because Jesus is our great high priest, um, he, he, he naturally couldn't come from 
a human line of priests and priesthood and be bound by those things. So he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which is a godly priesthood that, that, that who Jesus is and where he's from. And it's the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. So in Genesis 14, this character Melchizedek who shows up is Jesus himself. It's a theophany, a Christophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus um, and he shows up as he does eight other times in the Old Testament, and he appears to Abraham, and Abraham bows down. Um, and then we get to chapter 15 and verse um, 6. Now listen, when you're in chapter 15 and verse 6, you're 430 years before the law of Moses is given. And it says in chapter 15 of Genesis in verse number 6, it says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So how, how, how was Abraham made right with God? The word righteous means what? Right standing with God. God, in the New Testament, he unpacks and, and explains this word righteousness a little more and means that you're righteous. So I might say to you, hey, this is, this is my brother so-and-so, and he's righteous. My brother so-and-so is actually kind of a schmuck, right? And you know him, you're like, righteous? That dude ain't righteous. Well, if he's born again in, in Jesus Christ, he's made righteous because of the, impute, the imputed righteousness. So God takes, Jesus takes his righteousness and he gives it to you. He loans it to you. He, he puts it over you. And, and so that when he presents you to the Father, you're right with God. And when, when God the Father sees you, he sees his son. He sees the righteousness of Jesus, imputed righteousness. But we are made righteous, right with God. So we can go to heaven. No sins allowed. But here, um, Abraham is made righteous. But is he made righteous based on what he does? Is he made righteous because he tithed to Melchizedek in the last chapter? Is he made righteous because he rescued Lot and he fought a courageous battle? and Or, or, or any of the things because he left Ur of the Chaldees, he followed the Lord? There's one thing that makes Abraham righteous. His faith. His faith. He believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So it was the faith that saved Abraham. It's the faith that saved the rest of them. It's the faith that saves you and I. Um, their faith looking forward to a coming Messiah. Our faith looking back to a risen Messiah. And then um, Prophecy in verse 13 that they'll be afflicted 400 years. That would happen. Where were they afflicted 400 years? In Egypt. And then um, Hagar and Ishmael debacle in verse 16. Um, 7, 18, the, the son of promise is promised. Um, Sarah laughs. Again, not recorded in. Um, again, if you just read the story even of Sarah in Genesis 18, you find that Sarah wasn't really a beacon of faith in the story. She laughed. She had it in her heart. She lied on top of it. She was eavesdropping on the conversation that Abraham was having with the Lord. And, and the Lord says, Abraham, why did your wife laugh? And she's like, I didn't laugh. And he said, oh, but you did. I heard you. And, and so she, you know, but then we get to Hebrews. And it says, by faith, Abraham believed, or Sarah believed the Lord when she was told she was going to have a child with her old age. And so again, yes, she, she might have doubted and, and had some struggle in the moment that's recorded, but in her heart of hearts, she did believe. She knew. And you and I can be the same way, right? 
We know the Lord's going to come through, but it doesn't mean we don't doubt. It doesn't mean we don't have some struggles. And then we come to the famous story, um, or Isaac's born in 21. Finally, the, after all this season, what I skipped through that in the life of Abraham was twice. Um, there's a famine in Canaan where, where, where modern-day Israel was Canaan at the time. Um, and Mo, uh, Abraham is there in the uh, what was going to be the promised land in this area of Canaan, and he um, there's a famine there. Now, this this possibly rich kid, you know, well-educated from a city called Ur of the Chaldees would have never experienced a famine. He wouldn't even have known what that was as a young man. Famine? What's that? But there's this famine. But his faith, and, and if he was a man of faith, he should have hung out. Why? Because his faith would have said, hey, God's going to provide. I'm here where I'm supposed to be. I'm in the will of God. I know God's called me. God's going to provide. I'm going to stay right here in, in, in Canaan and wait for the Lord to show up. But what did he do? Because of a lack of faith. No, wait, hold on. Wait a minute. Abraham was the father of faith. How did he have a lack of faith? How does the father of faith to this day, kids next door in Sunday school, sing songs about him because of his great faith? How did, what do you mean he had a, yeah, he lacked faith. He struggled in the area of faith in times of his life. And that's encouraging for you and I, right? We have these patriarchs, these, these amazing fathers of faith who also struggle at times. And it's okay, right? Like God's going to recognize his strength. And Abraham takes his wife down. He makes her lie to the, to the pharaohs down there. That's his sister. And, and then we get to Genesis 22. We'll be done in a few minutes, guys. Um, And it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Hanani. That's Hebrew for here I am. Hanani. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, was not his only son, but the language is is similar to Jesus. Now, if if you don't know, I'm assuming all of you do, most of you do, that have been here, that Genesis 22 is a, is a pre-forerunner um, for Jesus' death on the cross. It's an identical story in the Old Testament that paints a perfect picture of what would happen 2,000 years later in the same exact geographical location on planet Earth where this story took place, that, that, um, that Jesus would go through these same things. In the story... Abraham is in the place of the father. Isaac is in the place of Jesus. And and so it's an Old Testament story that's a foreshadowing. It's a prophecy. It's a foretelling of of a future event that would take place in in perfect detail. So God in Genesis 3.16 says um, that he, he, for for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And here in Genesis 22.2, he says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah. Now the land of Moriah is where the Dome of the Rock is today. That mountain that the Dome of the Rock sits on is called Mount Moriah. And so and then you have to the, to the east side, you have a valley that goes down um, in a twin mountain on the other side called the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is, where Jesus would have prayed. And then in the, the valley that goes between these two mountains is called the Kidron Valley. To the east side there. Well, he was told to go to this place, Moriah. It was a three days journey from where he was. So wherever he was in Canaan, it took him three days to get to Moriah. Now, why, why do you think it took him three days? 
because Jesus would die and raise again on the third day. So Jesus was dead for three days. So it was a three days journey. And he says to the place which I shall tell you. And Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. And he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering. And he arose and he went to the place the second time. Um, many times in here this, this idea, the place, the spot, the that I will tell you. And he said of which God has to, had told him. And then on the third day, why the third day? Because Jesus rose on the third day. Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw again the place afar off. And so Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So the the very place. Now, God, as you read through this narrative, God says, go to the place, go to Moriah. And when you go to Moriah, go to the place that I'm going to show you. And, and the the place is not the place. It's a definite article. It's the place, the one and only place, the place. And, and so there was a specific place that you catch as you just read through this because you have that phrase repeated over and over again where I will show you the place, the place, the place that God was very um, specific about a place where he wanted Abraham to take Isaac. Now, if, if God just wanted to test, which he was testing Abraham's faith, and this is one of the greatest faith victories in, recorded in all of human history. For, for God to set Abraham up, like you talk about a setup. Like this dude was set up from the gate, called out of the earth, told that he would have a son who would give him children that would be innumerable as the sand of the seashore, that would become a great nation, that God would bless this nation immeasurably. And that anybody who cursed this nation, God would curse them. And anybody who blessed this nation that was going to be born from Abraham would be, would be um, blessed and cursed. I forget which one I was on. And then he says, not only that, but your wife is, go- is going to be past the age of childbearing. And he gave him this promise way before. And Abraham lives his whole life waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. He gets so discouraged that he, he tries to do it in the flesh, and, and, he, and he goes in and he has a baby with, with the handmaiden, Hagar. And this, this son of the flesh is born. And he begs God that this other son that he has could become the son of promise that God promised him. And God said, no, she wasn't born to Sarah, and I promised that you and Sarah would have this son of promise. And then Sarah, and then, and then years and years and years and years go by. 25 years of waiting. And Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 89 years old. Now, what do you think happened the night that she conceived? Like, she's 89, he's 99. She was past the age. He was past the age. Someone had faith that night. You know, Some was, maybe it was her, you know, like. Well, if God's going to give us a child, and so they, they, she conceives, and she has a child, and the promise is fulfilled, and it's miraculous, and the boy's growing, and now he's a young man. Pretty soon, he's going to be getting married. He's 33 years old, the prime of his life, and God shows up and says, Abraham, I want you to take that son that I gave you, the one of promise, the one you waited 30 years for, and lots of turmoil and has big, 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 big promises around him. 
And I want you to take him up onto a mountain that I'll show you. And, oh, by the way, I want you to bring, like, this big 12-inch knife with you, double-edged blade. And, and, and when you take him up on the top of the mountain, I want you to tie him to some wood. And I want you to take this knife and stab it in his heart and kill him. And then the Bible says in Genesis 22, um, verse 3, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning. You know what that means? That means that Abraham didn't delay in his obedience. That when it says he rose early in the morning, it means that immediately when God told him that, he rose early in the morning and began this journey. And then he says um, in, in, in verse 5, he's telling them, hey, stay here. The lad and I will go, go under, and we will come back to you. Who did Abraham believe was going to come back to the, the servants? Both of them. And we don't get this narrative here, but remember in Hebrews it says that Abraham believed in his mind, in his heart, that, that God was going to, if he had to, raise Isaac from the dead. But this test of faith, again, it's the greatest test of anybody's faith in human history. And, and I guess this is probably the reason why Abraham gets to wear the title, the father of faith. Because he had faith in God. He believed so much in God that he even believed that God would raise him from the dead. But still, the act of obedience to take a big knife and stick it through your son's heart. And then, and then the whole story again, you know, we're out of time now, but as you guys know, the, the whole story is exactly detail for detail the story of Jesus Christ. The same exact location on planet Earth. He says that they brought the wood and that Isaac carried the wood. Jesus would have carried the wood. It's important that Isaac was, was, a, was a grown man in the story and, and at the ripe age because Isaac had to go willingly. Because nobody took Jesus' life. Jesus went willingly. And so in order for the story to be a parallel and tell a picture, Isaac had to be able to overpower his father. And, and, if, and if he was in his 30s, his dad would have been 130 and he would have been 30. I'm sure he could have took the 130-year-old man, no problem. He willingly had to lay there while his dad stood over the top of him with a big knife and looking at his dad like, are you sure God told you this was a good idea? And, and, and really even the faith of Isaac to not say, all right, dad, this has gone far enough. Cut it out. Like, what are we doing? Yeah, like I'm out of here. But Isaac laid there. And Abraham had to commit to the decision before God could really, he could really complete the test before he could really compete the thing of faith. So I don't know what that means. I don't know how that happened. Maybe Abraham started. He's like, as soon as he made that decision to go for it, God stops him. Abraham, stop. <laughs> and then he turns around and there's a ram, big horns, stuck in some bush. He can't get out of the bush. His horns are stuck. God says, he'll, he'll, God says go kill a ram, not Isaac. It's cool. It's over. Test is over. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we give you glory and honor, we love you, and Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, um, Abraham is our father of faith, and he passed this particular test with flying colors, and Lord, sometimes these tests are, are scary, but they give us opportunity to grow in you. And Lord, help us to be people of faith. Lord, help us to see your faithfulness in this story, and, and that, Lord, when we get our opportunities to build our own faith stories, that we would also pass with these flying colors, and Lord, help us to trust you. And, Lord, we can't trust a God we don't know. How can we trust somebody that we don't know? The way that we trust you, and that's why the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
Because as we get into the word of God, we, become, we know you and we get closer to you. So, Father, heal us. Lord, touch us. Father, we pray that you would increase our faith. And, Lord, that we could completely, 100%, um, trust you with anything and everything you've ever called us to do. And trust you um, that you have our best interests at hand. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go out and have the faith of Abraham.